0: Many of our most beloved dishes, pillowy slices of pizza, crisp chocolate cookies, soft pita bread wrapped around tasty roasted lamb, these all started off as a humble bowl of dough. Indeed, dough is the mother to all manners of breads, pastries, pies, and more found in all corners of the globe, from street food carts to Michelin star restaurants. It is a foodstuff of immense potential with a history that, well, predates history. Today, As We Eat is serving up the story of dough. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience,
1: share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history and
0: how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing well, trying my best to keep cool in this Seattle summer heat. Doing okay, doing okay. Mm -hmm. How are you and where are you?
1: Same. We are dealing with the Montana heat. And for a lot of people who don't know Montana and Seattle, we don't generally have air conditioning in our homes. So when it gets up into the high 80s and the low 90s, it's a little bit miserable at times. We actually have moved off the mountain. We're into the valley now. I'm actually staying at my first best friend's mom's house. She's invited us to stay here and it's an absolutely lovely piece of property. We're right off the river and Josie is loving the grass, I'll tell you that. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. As you mentioned a little bit earlier, we're going to be talking about dough. And I think that we can safely say that we all know what dough is. And I'm not talking about the dough as a slang for money. I'm talking about that stuff that you can make into bread. Or is it for a pizza, or scones or cookies or rolls or biscuits or donuts or croissants or maybe it's a little bit more complicated or not. I mean, simply put, dough is a mixture of flour or meal and a liquid and you can use any type of flour or meal. Wheat, corn, rice, tapioca. Liquid tends to be either water or milk. Simple, right? Or not. The combination of these two ingredients is responsible for the spark that led to the development of state and large political units, according to William Rubel, a food historian and author of Bread, a Global History. He postulates that villages grew into cities because bread allowed for the accumulation of surpluses, which then led to the development of social classes. Maybe not complicated, but complex for sure. It's important to understand that the domestication of these bread grains was foundational to the development of social structures, including those state and political units that Rubel identifies. The first evidence that we as humans had discovered bread dates back 22,000 to 30,000 years depending upon who you cite. Modern-day archaeologists discovered barley grains in a grinding stone at an excavation site called Ohalo II in Israel. They suspected that the inhabitants made flat cakes combining grains and water that would have been baked in the embers of the fire or possibly on heated rocks. About 12,500 years ago, the Natufians, sidebar, I think that's a great name for a tribe or a group of people. I do too. <laughs> anyway, this Mesolithic group were originally, like most, hunter-gatherers. But they're thought to be the first people who decided this hunter-gatherer thing was really exhausting and, And the Jordan River Valley was pretty nice. So why don't we figure out how to stay here? Clearly, they needed to figure out how to take control of the food supply. After all, that's why they were moving around to find food. Now, we've talked at length about food preservation. We talked about it in our vinegar and cake flour episode. We talked about it in our beer episode. We talked about it in our fair episode, and most recently in our jam, jelly, and marmalade episode. So whether you are a hunter-gatherer or a farmer, you need to be able to preserve the harvest to sustain yourself until the next harvest, and that's exactly what the Nutufians did. They practiced techniques in harvesting and grinding barley into flour, then making breads similar to pita bread. These breads were calorie-dense and again allowed for building surpluses of wheat and bread, which in turn allowed for the development of domestication of bread grains from there, domestication and cultivation of grains spread across the Middle East into Asia, the Nile Valley, Mesopotamia. And as you can imagine, culture, cuisine, religion, and social status within each of these areas would have had an impact on the development of the types of dishes that would be made from this simple mixture of flour or meal and a liquid. The type of flour used would often define social status breads that contained less grain and were more white in appearance were indicative of education and wealth. Rye, bran, and coarser breads were only eaten by those of poorer status. The Romans leaned into their expertise in brewing to influence bread making. By adding yeast to doughs, they developed breads that were fluffy and light and had a characteristic taste of sourdough. The Gauls, Residents of the Iberian Peninsula used the foam from beer making in the baking process that created a unique bread that was light in texture and had a pretty distinct taste. The Vikings incorporated rye, yeast, and honey into their bread making. Now, ingredients added to this flour or meal and liquid mixture began to impact what could be made with dough. Add a fat and mix it very briefly and you have a short dough, perfect for pies and biscuits. Further modify the ratio of the flour fat liquid from the short dough and you've created a pâté brisé, the perfect base for fluted eggs. Add an egg or two, depending upon the recipe, and you have choux. And you can be sure that cream puffs will be on the menu or eclairs or profiteroles or croquembouche. Layer butter in between the dough over and over and you can make a croissant. I personally leave this to the professionals. The van just doesn't have the room for this process.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And really, who has time for that much laminating? It's fun to watch, but man, I don't have time for that. No, me either.
1: Now, if you add oil, preferably olive, and a little salt and yeast, and pizza dough is ready for your favorite toppings. Roll the dough paper thin, tracing paper thin, and you have phyllo, perfect for baklava, Or an apple and raisin strudel. The variations are innumerable, much like the bakers that innovate with this simple foundation of flour or meal and a liquid.
0: Kim, do you have a favorite thing that you make with dough? I do, actually. And I was really inspired today thinking about dough and all the things you can make with it. And so early this morning, like I wanted to try something new and to stretch my dough making muscles. And so I made pizza dough today. That's actually for the first time that I've ever done that. It is for our dinner tonight. I'm very excited. The whole thing has been rising and I've been kneading it and it smells like a beer. So I may have put too much yeast in it. But my husband is a veteran pizza dough flipper and tosser, so he is going to uh, make sure that assembly comes together into a tasty pizza dinner. I will do my best to get photographs. That would be um, fabulous. We need to see yeah. how the pizza <laughs> turns out. <laughs> and it's just a quick dough. And it's This was a matter of a couple of hours, so we'll see how good it is. But I'm feeling happy about it. It's neat when you create something like that. It is. And as I said, I was feeling inspired. To wrap my head around our topic today, I got my dough going, working, and I knew it had to rise for a little bit. So after that, I sat with a cup of coffee, and I did my best to imagine several centuries worth of human history with dough. I thought about our most ancient forebears who not only messed around with mixing plants and meats and things together, but who also stuck those results into fires or boiling water or boiling oil just to see if we could eat it. And I thought about all those who got sick because the results were disgusting And about the ones who died because it was toxic. I just still remain to this day very grateful that we have Mm. such an amazing abundance of food available to us. I also thought about those who persevered, those who grinded wheat germ into flour. I thought about the billions, trillions more likely, pairs of hopefully clean hands carefully measuring and sifting flour with water and egg and little magic wild yeast and kneading them together to form the culinary equivalent of clay. And then I imagined the people of every age and ancestry from wise Italian grandmothers to young Jewish bakery apprentices, all these people who worked to shape that dough into any of the multitude of breads, pies, cookies, savories, that make up the cornucopia of our global food traditions. All the things that you mentioned, they're all amazing. Right. Although I do love stuff that comes from short dough. Those are tend to be my favorites. Yes, I have to agree. Dough is this building block that literally multiplies and enriches our lives. We give dough as gifts at weddings and in friendship. You mentioned before, it's a slang for money because it is something that increases in its value. I'd also argue that dough is not only admired because it is a progenitor of true food staples of our diets, but because it's also composed of some of our most beloved and sacred ingredients. Mm. Flour, eggs, milk, and more, depending on how you want to transform the dough. For pasta, for example, all you really need is like flour, egg, and water. And flour, whether made from wheat, rye, corn, rice, legumes, all the things you mentioned, is the real backbone of the dough. And we've talked a little bit before about flour. And so I invite you to return to both episode 19, our very first "What's in Your Pantry?" and then it's Follow Companion Episode Twenty: Grain Empires. When, as we eat, really dug into how wheat turns into flour, it's a really gut and kind meat of fascinating process, especially if you have never thought about it before. And while there are many types of cereals and grains that are grown around the world, rice and wheat are the two cereals most produced for human consumption. Although maize is actually second after rice, but further down list on human consumption. So we grow more maize than we grow wheat, but we use that maize for like animal feed and industrial processes. I thought that was kind of interesting. Number one uh, producer and eater of wheat actually is China, which I had no idea of that. Yeah, I had no idea there. Yeah, the United States is fourth on the list of countries that produce wheat. Wheat itself tends to fall into two categories, hard or soft wheat and winter or summer wheat. Hard wheats have more of what gluten needs to form and makes for a firmer flour, which is perfect for bread. And softer wheats have more starch, less gluten potential those softer flours are ideal for finer pastries. I really could go on and on about flour. I have been known to do so, which is why I'm (laughs) recommending that you check out episodes 19 and episodes 20. But for today, I really wanted to focus more on the universality of dough, especially whether it's leavened or unleavened. And as you probably already know, I know you know, Lei, leavening is something that's added to dough to make it bubble and rise, and that's something like yeast baking powder, baking soda, the wild yeast that we talked about earlier. Leavened dough is considered a dough's final form. At that point, it is ready to be baked into bread, pizza, pastries. And these foods absolutely have a broad footprint in pre-modern global cuisines. But unleavened dough forms the basis of flatbread. And that is something very special to talk about because Some form of flatbread is a foundational food in all parts of our planet. You and I Eat the Same, On the Countless Ways Food and Cooking Connect Us to One Another, is a collection of essays I really love about the commonalities of food. The book contains a really thought-provoking essay on fried chicken, and that informed my two-part essay on southern food that we published in the As We You journal. But it was Erilyn Beaumont's essay titled Everybody Wraps Meat in Flatbread, that really caught my attention with this idea about dough and the ubiquity of flatbreads and the use of unleavened dough. Really, the whole book is brilliant. Check out our show notes for a link to find it. Beaumont's point is that no matter where in the world you imagine eating, there is a precedent for eating vegetables or meat encased by flatbread. So think a carne asada taco, think lamb gyro, think shredded duck pancake, think cheese bellinis, Everywhere in the world, there is some form of this dish. It's called something different everywhere. Of course, it is. The actual components of it are all completely different, but fundamentally, it's the same thing food on top of food that you hold and you eat in your hand. We all do it. Every single culture, food culture, does this. And as historian B. Wilson, author of Consider the Fork and so many other things, she's brilliant might point out we ate with our hands well before we even invented fork spoons and knives, all these modern hallmarks of civilized eating. So it was this thing that developed because we needed it to, but also because it was tasty and fun to do. And I think we forget sometimes that eating food could be fun, right? Not just nutrition. And flatbreads actually maybe the world's oldest baked good. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna bring us back just for a few minutes to our friends, the Natufians who I agree, best tribal name ever. I found an article about the surprise discovery of ancient breadcrumbs found at this excavation site. Archaeobotanist, I just had to say that because that's one of the coolest job titles ever. Archaeobotanist Amaya Aranes Otengue, and I'm so sorry, I'm sure I've brutalized that pronunciation. But this archaeobotanist was researching the foodways of the Natufians hunter-gatherer tribe known to have been living in that area approximately 14,000 years ago. Mm. I just love the scope of that. Now, they had already found ample evidence of the hunter-gatherer life that they knew that this tribe was living in the form of gazelle, sheep, and hair bones, the in cooking pit with char marks, etc. But it was the presence of primordial breadcrumbs at a time, and this is like 4,000 years before we knew the system of farming and agriculture really came about, That seems to suggest that rather than the invention of baking resulting from agricultural production, that maybe these early people realized they had a good thing going and that they intentionally decided to plant and cultivate the cereal crops in order to make more of it. This is, of course, exactly what you're saying, Leigh, about the idea like hey, the Jordan Valley is pretty nice place to stay. What can we do to stay here? What can we do to have more of this delicious red-like substance that we are making without having to walk around and forage for it and hope that you find a couple of germs of wheat? Of course, what the Natufians were making their bread out of wasn't the wheat that we know of it today in the United States. But researchers found that the Natufians were using a wild wheat called einkorn And mixing that with mashed tuber roots that, when ground together, formed this pliable dough that was used to press into the walls of the fire pits, very much like an early tandoor oven. And there's evidence that not only did the Natufians make this bread substance out of these ingredients, that they also used oats, barley, and wild mustard seeds. And there's also this persistent mythology from that area that the sharing of fresh tandoor bread between two young people is a symbol of young love. I just thought that was really sweet. Mm. So I'm going to put the link in the show notes to both the NPR article and the scholarly paper on which it's based. It's really interesting reading. If you're finding yourself intrigued by these things that Leigh and I have been talking about, please check this out because, as I said, I think it just completely changes that image of the hunter-gatherer versus the farmer Mm. technology that we've for so long have positioned as being the evolution of food, really. And I don't know. Leigh, what are your thoughts about that?
1: I also thought that it was very fascinating when I was researching and found out about the Natufians as well, because you're right. We felt like there's this hard stop where you are either a hunter-gatherer or you are a farmer, but this discovery really is more in line with We've discovered that we can take this wild stuff and start to harvest it and it will give us enough of the energy and calories that we need that we can start to develop these domesticated components that will allow us to stay a little bit longer. So, yeah, I thought it was really fascinating because there isn't a hard stop. It isn't that we stopped being hunter-gatherers and we started agriculture. There was a time at which they both coalesced together in order to
0: move forward from there. Absolutely. And I just, I guess I'm always really taken with those moments where our thinking and our thoughts about who we are and how we came to be get get a little bit more light shed on it. And that's right. what I feel that this discovery really did for us, especially for people interested in food and food history. Yeah. Although the timeframes are all very different, Beaumont, the essay author that I'm talking about, she points out in their essay that humans have found ways to make dough from any staple grain to create signature flatbreads across the world. The list is pretty exhaustive, but I just wanted to mention a few. Flatbrod in Norway, Mm -hmm. Aripa in Venezuela, Nogome in Mali, Dosa in India, Mm -hmm. Kesra in Algeria, Blinis in Russia, Frybread in the United States... Trapezino in Italy, and so much more. As I said before, just about every food culture across the planet, with some very minor exceptions. I don't know that there's a real endemic flatbread for folks who live in the very extreme weather. I don't know how much grain naturally happens there anyway, but the fun thing about food and about how people move around this planet, too, is that we do bring these things to each other. So even though We may not always be immediately familiar with the types of grains that are used to create flour, which in turn used to create dough, which is in turn used to create amazing foods. We can carry those traditions with us wherever we go. One of the things I wanted to talk about in this vein was I think it's really cool that we can talk about those moments of similarities that we have One of the cool things about talking about food is discovering the ways in which we're all a little bit different, and yet that we can still work together, even though we don't eat the same. But in reality, we do eat the same. And just to wax poetic, I guess, still about this book, I just love that there's this moment in this conversation about food and what it means to us to come together and to really examine the things that we have in common, Mm. flatbread. Fried chicken, rice, the list goes on. Dumplings. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And we're going to be talking about dumplings very soon. But it's just, it's neat to talk about the ways that we're different as well as the ways we're similar. Totally agree. And dough is it. There's virtually no culture that does not have dough. So I couldn't put this episode to bed without some mention of one of the most notorious chain letters of baking. And I'm talking about Amish friendship bread dough recipes. So if you're not familiar, and I can't imagine that you're not, (laughs) but just in case, if you're not familiar, my personal recollection is that the recipe and jars of the starter dough, which was like a simple concoction of flour, sugar, milk, water, and yeast, spread between households in the mid-80s like a virus – The recipe was really simple, and the resulting bread was really delicious. And it came with this really sweet story about sharing your bounty with others and that you give a little bit of love when you give the starter to a friend. To use all the starter yourself or worse, to let the gifted starter die was like the most terrible, horrible thing you could possibly do because you were letting friendship die. The funny thing, though, is that the (laughs) recipe wasn't actually Amish – Although this recipe's story appears to be styled on some traditions within the Amish and Mennonite communities to bring food to the sick and needy, it also appears to be related to a popular and basically identical 1970s recipe for Herman Friendship Cake. It's a little bit like the famous Bloomingdale's or Macy's chocolate chip cookie where it has no known origin. It's a real recipe and it has this really kind of fantastic story that goes along with it. In short, a friend gives you a jar of starter with a set of instructions of what to do over the next 10 days. Every four days, additional ingredients are meant to be added and stirred. On the ninth day, the starter is divided into equal parts and all but one of these parts is passed along to friends last part is kept at home and baked off on the 10th day. As I recall, this dough is really versatile. You can add all kinds of things like cinnamon, apples, dried fruit, chocolate chips to make it a sweet bread. Or you could actually make it a savory bread by adding in olives, tomatoes, herbs, and that kind of thing. Do you remember these, Leigh?
1: I I do remember these. And I have to say, I always hated getting them. (laughs) Because I always knew that obligation. I was gonna, I knew I didn't have the time to take care of this thing the way that I was supposed to. So there was always this huge guilt about letting it die. The worst thing, the worst thing exactly. you could do right,
0: was let it die. I know, I know, it was
1: terrible. I also hate chain letters, so <laughs> it goes along hand in hand with that.
0: My mom received one from a friend with just this exasperated eye roll, a single working mom. Who's got yes. time to stir and add and, and be that specific? The, the kid me was like thrilled, right? Because this was like a program with a calendar and like a thing. I, I just was. Ex- but no, that was I know we were given a starter. I know that it did not make it to its 10th day. At one point, I do remember it being a joke about oh, I've got starter, but everyone's got starter. <laughs> Nowhere I know else right? for this who to do go? I give it to yes. And of course eventually the internet did make it all the easier for these chain letter recipes to continue to spread around and be collected to date the friendship bread kitchen website has a collection of more than 250 recipes for friendship bread fans so if oh you god. are My god there's
1: a whole whole website website dedicated dedicated to it dedicated
0: specifically to friendship bread and it's actually kind of a sweet origin story though for the website because an author of a fiction novel and I've forgotten her name and I can put it in the show notes but she was inspired by this idea of the commonalities sharing food sharing recipes sharing friendship and so she has this book based around this concept and it, it reinvigorated the, the whole kind of thing, because that's easy now. You can just send somebody an email and here's a recipe. I don't know about the starter. I don't know how you get the starter to anybody, but <laughs> right, it's okay. So yeah, friendship bread, dough. That's, it was such a phenomenon over the past couple of years, how dough became just a big presence in our lives. It was something that gave us hope. What I did discover though, because my time frame of this is I remember it from the 80s. Obviously Herman friendship cake is from the 1970s. But actually, this recipe, this concept of a recipe goes back before the 1930s. It actually goes into the late 1800s, where it was once upon a time, friendship cake, not a bread. Again, very simple starter. Its hallmark has been this ability to like, it can grow, it can live, it can expand, you can give some to your friends. But I really was intrigued by this idea that this recipe has been kicking around for over 100 years. And to me, that does illustrate how important we feel that food is to each other. and But also, again, to how important dough is. It can live like it do.
1: Absolutely. And that was cool. I want to just say that I ran through a list of some of our other episodes where we discussed food preservation pretty quickly, and I wanted to make sure that you guys are able to check them out. So the first one was, and Kim also suggested this one, episode 19, it was What's in Your Pantry, Vinegar and Cake Flour, where we share some fun food facts about elephants, balsamic vinegar, and soft as silk. The second episode that I suggested was episode 24, which is beer, what beer was, what beer is, and what beer will be. This episode was so much fun. You will learn about the craft that was predominantly performed by women to the effects of the prohibition on the brewing industry. The third one that I suggested was episode 28, Fair Foods, canned goods, corn dogs, and levitated cakes. Yes, we talk about standard fair foods, but you may be surprised by what was included as a fair food in the Chicago World's Fair. And the most recent episode where we discuss food preservation is episode 26 by Jam, Jellies and Conserves a true story of fruit spreads. We dish the story of these sweet spreads and how they became staples on our breakfast table, thanks to Napoleon Bonaparte. And you also mentioned another one, Kim. I did. 20 grain
0: empires. How two major companies, Pillsbury and Kellogg, took root here in the United States and milling was their business line and they made flour a gold medal standard from coast to coast. <laughs> Some pun intended. We also talk a lot about Betty Crocker in that episode, and she's always fun to talk about. She is so much fun. So yeah, check
1: out one, all. There's so much more to learn about everything that we've talked about today. And in two weeks, you'll find us back here discussing a dish that has as many cultural variations as dough. Actually, many of them incorporate dough. Don't miss part one of our three-part series as we travel around the world discussing dough dumplings. Oh, I'm so
0: hungry. That sounds like such a good idea. I'm so excited. (laughs) For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe
1: wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify, we would be ever so appreciative. This helps those crazy content robots know that you enjoy the show and hopefully they'll do their robot thing and recommend it to other food
0: enthusiasts. We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack, and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discovery, explorations, and travel stops. There are three subscription tiers, including one especially for brands. We're sure you'll find one perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast
1: Part of our curiosity driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor.
0: Ba-ba-da. Ba-da-ba-da.